perhaps no other topic has captured the imaginations of American Christians like the concept of the Antichrist. At least in my ministry and my experience in church, I've not seen any other topic create as much conjecture and distraction from actually being with Jesus and becoming like Jesus and doing what Jesus did. I've known so many Christians who spend so much time worrying about it. We're almost at the end of a series about eschatology, which is the theology of how things end. And we've been exploring the different Christian perspectives on how things end and emphasizing the importance not of being fearful, not about reading the newspaper and trying to insert Bible verses into it, but emphasizing the importance of remaining hopeful about the future so that we can be obedient in the present. And honestly, when I started doing this series, I started laying it out, I was like, I'm just going to ignore this concept of the Antichrist altogether, because this is such a polarizing topic, and it's such a Christian boogeyman, that honestly, I think for Christians, it makes them a little bit anxious to talk about it. For non-Christians, uh, they kind of are like, what are you guys, like, you're scared of these, like, fake, pagan, made-up, you know, boogeymen coming to get you, like, what are you doing? Um, I remember a few elections ago, I was in a church down in Tennessee where I was ministering at, and one of the elders, one of the leaders in the churches came up to me, and he asked if the, the candidate running for the opposite political party of his, he was like, do you think that guy's the Antichrist? And then fast forward a few years later, another church leader in the opposite party came up and talked about another candidate in the opposite party from him, and he said, do you think that this guy's the Antichrist? And I was like, no, I, I don't think it's the Antichrist. Just because they think differently you, just because they're in a different political party, that doesn't mean they're, they're an Antichrist. It's not enough to just dislike people, it seems like. Uh, we have to, we want them to be some kind of cosmic embodiment of evil, too. Um, anybody familiar with snipe hunts? Okay, so. Snipe hunts? Yeah, okay. So, I have a brief tenure in Boy Scouts. You know Boy Scouts of America? I went to one meeting. When I was a kid, I loved the outdoors. I loved trees. I loved hunting. Well, I didn't love hunting because I didn't like killing animals. But I liked being out in the woods. I liked hiking. I liked camping and survival. And so I went to one of these Boy Scout meetings to see if I wanted to become a Boy Scout. But I was a shy introvert. And it was a room full of like 40 crazy boys running around and screaming. And I never went back. Um, but my dad's friend was a Boy Scout troop leader, and he said one of the things they did, it was a hazing, where the troop leader would describe this weird bird. This is a real bird called a snipe, and it's very elusive, it's a ground bird, but they would describe a crazy made-up bird, and then they would release boys into like a wooded area, and they would say, find this snipe. And these crazy boys would be released in the woods and they would run around and they would beat down bushes and they would come back an hour later and they'd be tired out enough that you could actually get something done because they had used up all their energy. They would spend hours crashing through the brush trying to startle this bird and in the end they would tire themselves out and never find anything. It often feels like American Christianity has us on a snipe hunt to find the Antichrist, and we find nothing, but it tires us out so we don't actually have the energy to pursue the things Jesus told us to be doing. So today we're going to look at what does the Bible actually say about this Antichrist? What should we be doing to resist him? Do we need to be living in fear that the Antichrist is just going to show up at any time and ruin our lives? The word Antichrist comes from two Greek words, antichristos, um, Antichrist, and you can be literally translated not as Antichrist, but as against Christ. 
against Christ. The term only appears in the writings of John and only in his letters of 1st and 2nd John. It only appears four times in the whole Bible, just in 1st and 2nd John. Listen to these verses. These are the only four places in Scripture where it mentions the ante Christos. Little children, it is the last hour, as you have heard that Antichrist comes. Even now there are many Antichrists. That's how we know it's the last hour. 1 John 2, 22. Who is the liar but the one that denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. 2 John 1, 7. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess that Jesus the Christ has come in the flesh. Any such person is the deceiver and the Antichrist. And the fourth passage is the one we're going to unpack in just a minute today. But before we do that, there are some other passages that people think are tied to the Antichrist, even though they don't mention that term or make any direct connection to him. Uh, these include Jesus' prediction of a false messiah in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. Jesus says, hey, there's going to be other people who show up and say they're messiahs. They're going to be false messiahs. Some people see that as a picture of the Antichrist. Paul's discussion of the lawless one in 2 Thessalonians 2 I think in its historical context, Paul's references to the lawless one or the man of sin or the man of perdition in 2 Thessalonians is almost certainly a veiled reference to the Roman emperor. Like if the Roman Empire is cracking down on your religion and you want to write a letter to everybody but you don't want to have the Roman emperor burn the letter or imprison you, you can use things like, you know the man of sin that is just like driving sinfulness throughout our whole country, that guy. Like I think most people in Historical context read that as the emperor, but some people read that as the Antichrist. Other people think the beast in the book of Revelation is also the Antichrist, even though John, who wrote 1 John and 2 John, the only places where the Antichrist is mentioned, doesn't make that connection for us in the book of Revelation, which he also wrote. All that to be said, our modern idea of an Antichrist has been built piecemeal from several different passages that may or may not relate to him uh, that may not relate to him and may not relate to each other. So, clear your mind of what you might think you know about the Antichrist, and let's look at what 1 John 4 says about this mysterious figure. 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6. Beloved, do not trust every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they belong to God, because many false prophets have gone out in the world, and this is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh belongs to God. Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus does not belong to God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist that you have heard is coming and is in fact is already here in the world. You belong to God, children, and you have conquered them. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They belong to the world accordingly. Their teaching belongs to the world, and the world listens to them. We belong to God, and anyone who knows God listens to us. Well, anyone who does not belong to God refuses to hear us. This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deceit. A little bit of bandwagon, uh, you know, uh, thinking right there. He's like, if you agree with us, obviously you're with us. You know, like, if you think like us, you're going to listen to us. But let's start to unpack some of this. In English, the word antichrist makes me imagine an evil clone of Jesus. Like, that's just what I think of when I hear antichrist. Like, Wario to Mario or Bizarro to Superman. I think we have a picture of Superman and Bizarro. You know, he's like the bad Superman. It's like the evil opposite version of Superman, or like a Sith to a Jedi. But like I said earlier, that's not what the word means in Greek. In Greek, it means against Jesus. This is the against Jesus. Antichrist isn't the evil Christ, the twisted, bizarro Jesus. It is someone who is against Jesus, 
and against the ways of Jesus. And the other thing we have to consider is that John saw the Antichrist not as a single person. What did he say in 1 John 2.18, which we just read a moment ago? John says there are many Antichrists. These are people bound to an ideology that's against the ways of Jesus. So sometimes when you see maybe a family member or a friend or somebody post or a social media influencer, and they're like, is this famous person the Antichrist? You know, I occasionally see like, is Putin the Antichrist? He invaded Ukraine. Is that a picture of? Or is Kanye the Antichrist? You know, like, we're asking the wrong question. We should be asking, does this person's rhetoric, does what they say and how they live flow with the ways of Jesus? Or are they against the way that Jesus operated and instructed his disciples to operate in the world? Notice what example John uses here. He's like, this is how you know an antichrist. Antichrist will deny that Jesus came in the flesh. Resisting the antichrist is primarily then, in John's teaching, about rejecting false narratives about reality, and especially, especially reality about Jesus. The spirit of Antichrist is ideas that undermine the person and the mission of Jesus. It is people who misrepresent what Jesus was all about. They may be talking about Jesus. Uh, they may even think they are trying to accomplish his goals, but they aren't using his methods. They're actually against the ways of Jesus. It reminds me of that scene in the Fellowship of the Ring from the Lord of the Rings series. Um, Frodo has this evil, powerful ring, and he's like, I don't want this responsibility. And so he goes to Gandalf, this good and kind ancient wizard, and he says, take this evil ring from me. Just take it. You can have it. I don't want it. And Gandalf says, don't tempt me, Frodo. I dare not take it, not even to keep it safe. Understand, Frodo, I would use this ring from a desire to do good, but through me it would wield a power too great and terrible to imagine. I think sometimes in Christianity today, especially American Christianity, we're trying to use the power of the ring in order to defeat the forces of darkness. And what happens is when you use the wrong methods, you get bad results. We have some people in pulpits and platforms desiring to bring about the will of God through the methods of Antichrist. Just like everything good accomplished with the ring would become evil, everything we attempt to do in Jesus' name that we, or even for Jesus' glory, that we don't use Jesus' methods for, will turn out to be evil, not good. And the fact that John uses this example clues us into something else, um, that John saw the primary antichrist of his day as Gnostics, or the uh, philosophy of Gnosticism. Now, this is a little bit of uh, church history for a minute, so I will try to be quick and not boring, but it's important to understand the text, really to understand the New Testament. A ton of the New Testament writers spend a lot of their time writing against the ideas of Gnosticism and how it is contrary to the ways of Jesus. In seminary and church history class, we learned that this was the critical heresy of the first century. So wherever you read in the New Testament, there's almost always a New Testament author that in the back of his mind is like, I need to say something against Gnosticism. This is the biggest threat to Christianity in our day. Now, when we read it, we read it from a modern perspective, and we're like, what's Gnosticism? Like, I don't even see that. But everyone who is reading in the first century is seeing it as a direct critique on Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a huge and influential philosophy in the first century, 
And um, often we draw the wrong conclusions from New Testament passages because we read them in light of our current theological questions or at best in light of theological questions that came up from the Reformation. But we often fail to consider the questions the original writers and readers were asking and wanting to address. And so sometimes they write a passage and it's directly contradicting Gnosticism, but we try to make it about like, well, is this about grace or works from the Reformation? Or we move it up to the modern time and we say, is this about this or that? And we have to understand it in its historical context before we can make application across time and space. So what is Gnosticism? The Greek word means having knowledge, like an agnostic is like, I can't know. A Gnostic is someone who has knowledge, especially secret knowledge. It was a loose collection of religious ideas and systems which exploded in the late first century. And these groups emphasized, emphasized personal spiritual knowledge above orthodox teachings, traditions, and the authority of religious institutions. The Gnostic view of the universe prevents, uh, presents a distinction between a supreme um, hidden God and a evil lesser divinity, which they believed was the God of the Old Testament, who actually created the material universe. So you have a good God who's completely spiritual, but he's hidden and secret. And then you have this God who shows up on earth, but he's a real jerk. And he creates the world just to torture people and be a prick. Um, and so Gnostics considered the material existence flawed or evil because this God who made the material world was a jerk, you know? And um, so they saw Jesus as the appearance of the actual spiritual real God, but they're like, he couldn't be physical. He was just a spiritual appearance because why? Physical's bad, material's bad, and that's from the bad God. And so Gnostics believed that any materi material existence was flawed or evil. They held the principal element of salvation to be direct knowledge of the hidden divinity attained via mystical or esoteric insight. And many Gnostic texts deal not in concepts of sin and repentance, but illusion and enlightenment. Like I've seen through the illusion, now I see the truth. The Matrix, you know the Matrix movies? That is a great storytelling example of Gnosticism. Everyone's trapped in this illusion. There's a real reality beyond that, but we can't see it because we're stuck in this fake thing. But when you take the red pill, you wake up to reality and now you can manipulate the illusion. And apparently you wanna wear a lot of black leather. But this is a great example of what Gnosticism essentially teaches. In the book of Revelation, which John records, Jesus tells the churches in Revelation that he hates the teachings of the Nicolaitans. This is in Revelation chapter two. The Nicolaitans, like if you're just reading that, he'd write all these letters to the churches, like you guys are doing a good job. Thanks for continuing the ways of Jesus. Thanks for doing all these things. And he's like, by the way, I also hate the teachings of the Nicolaitans. You're like, who are the Nicolaitans? Like, why are they getting so much trouble from Jesus? Um, that was an early Gnostic sect. And so we see in the New Testament writings, these writers are going over and over again, we reject Gnosticism. And here, John, what he is saying is, if you say Jesus didn't come in the flesh, you're anti-Christ, you're against Christ. Gnosticism is a disembodied view of spirituality. And sometimes we still see this in our modern American Christianity, when we're theologically led to believe that Jesus cares more about our souls than our bodies, we're a package deal. Jesus doesn't just love your soul, he also loves you. 
You're a combination package. He loves your body and your soul. His mission is about heaven and earth. It is about bodies and souls. Look at how the gospel writers use the word salvation. If you look at the Greek word salvation and you read through the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they use it both to describe the role and reign of Jesus rescuing us from sin and death, but they also use the word to describe Jesus' acts of feeding and healing. For Jesus, it wasn't an either or. He cared about the whole person. Gnosticism tries to split that and say, spiritual matters, physical doesn't. I think Gnosticism, though, also rears its head in other ways in our modern world. Gnosticism was about having secret knowledge that no one else had. Anybody been on social media and someone feels like they have the secret knowledge that nobody else has? And they're like, I read this Reddit post, and so now I know, you know, I know the secret knowledge. It was about having spiritual enlightenment to see through the illusion that they imagined everyone else was living in. I cannot help but think how our conspiracy theories and misinformation have taken our world by storm and how similar that is to how Gnostics thought. And many times, misinformation and conspiracy theories have taken even the church and the students of Jesus captive. The Bible teaches us that the devil, the Satan, is a liar who primarily deals in lies, whose primary means of attacking us or tempting us is built around getting us to believe things that aren't true. Um, a few years ago, I was in a conference for church planters, men and women starting churches across the Northeast. Uh, it was people from D.C. up to Maine, and we all met in Boston, and uh, we had like a two-day retreat where there was training and speakers and things. Um, and this one speaker got up, and he began to read out a list of lies he had heard when he planted his church in Boston, when he started a church in Boston. He said, here were some of my lies. You're bad at this. This is a failure. You should give up and do something else. You're all alone. You're not enough. He went through this list, lie after lie after lie. And he said, if you've heard this lie, raise your hand. Every one of us in the room raised our hand. Like, we've all heard those exact same lies. Hundreds and hundreds of hands went up because we were all being fed the same lies. We were all facing the same lies. Now, that might not be the lie that you hear. Um, you might hear something like, God must hate me. People are going to leave me. No one has ever loved me. The dark spiritual forces in our world do their most sinister work through false ideas. John Mark Comer in his book, Live No Lies, says this. Ideas have power only when we believe them. We hear all sorts of ideas every day, some brilliant, some ridiculous, but they have zero effect on us unless we begin to trust them as an accurate map to reality. But if you live a lie long enough, tragically, what was false begins to become true. When you believe a lie, you actually begin to make it true in your life. Now, growing up in evangelical churches, in American Christianity, I was constantly in fear of this evil boogeyman who wields the powers of Satan, the Antichrist. He was going to somehow trick me into taking his mark. I wanted to follow Jesus, but somehow he was going to put his evil mark on me, and I was going to be his prisoner for eternity. I had a lot of fear about a one-world government coming to take my Bible and throw me into prison for believing in Jesus. Like, there's all kinds of groups now online about, like, did you grow up in American Christianity and you have trauma today? Here, join this social media group and let's talk about it. But this is a real story. I did not make this up. And I did not realize how weird this was until just a couple years ago. And I was like, that was a weird childhood. But my sister and I would play in our backyard. We had a couple, uh, there was like a bunch of acres of woods behind our house. And we would go out there and play. And we would play that we were Christians 
surviving in the woods during the rule of the Antichrist. And like planes would go over and we'd get down low because we were hiding from the Antichrist spy planes. And I'm like, that's a messed up childhood. But that's like because of this picture of the Antichrist that we were presented in our churches, we lived in this constant fear. And maybe you have a lot of fear and anxiety about the forces of darkness or the, uh, the pictures of the Antichrist you've been told throughout your life. I think Jesus would say to that, Exactly what John says here in this passage. You belong to God, children, and you are conquerors, for the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. I wish I had heard that in my churches growing up a lot more than I heard that the Antichrist was going to start a one-world government, come and take my Bibles and imprison me. We don't need to fear the darkness. We don't need to fear any of the servants of darkness, whether they are antichrist or false prophets or beasts or some other creature or idea or thing. The Holy Spirit lives in us. The triune God empowers us. The light in us is brighter than the deepest darkness in the universe. We don't have to be afraid. It is the darkness that fears the light, not the light in us that fears the darkness. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one? That's very good. That's a good thing to believe. But the demons believe that, and it makes them shudder. The God who lives inside us as apprentices of Jesus' way of life, his mere existence makes dark spiritual forces shudder in fear. So we don't need to live with anxiety and fear, worrying about what evil world leader may be the Antichrist, because it doesn't matter. The Bible never tells us, figure out who the Antichrist is. What the Bible tells us to do is figure out who Jesus is, become like him, and do what he did doesn't matter who the Antichrist is. It only matters who Jesus is. The Bible teaches us that there are dark spiritual forces who are empowered by the violence and injustice of human governments. That may seem crazy in our modern Western world, but that's what it teaches. And I think if you look at world history, there are governments that seem to be not just evil human governments, but demonically evil governments. But Jesus is greater than any dark spiritual powers. Injustices will always be defended fiercely because they are feeding dark, unseen spiritual forces. But we don't need to be afraid because he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And this should make us hopeful about the future. And it should give us confidence to be obedient in the present. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that we do not need to fear the dark. Thank you that you have put your light in us when we've accepted your life. And God, sometimes I, I look at the news or I even just look at the local news in my city and I think, man, there's such violence, there's such poverty, there's such crime, there's such injustice. Lord, I don't even know what to do about it. But you've told us to love our neighbors, to serve those around us, to be sacrificial, to live in love like you did. And you told us that somehow your ways ways of laying down your life instead of demanding our rights and fighting with violence and power and money, somehow that changes the darkness into light. God, may we join you in your kingdom and in your mission to build your kingdom, to push back the darkness. We know that kingdom is falling apart and your kingdom is rushing in. Let us be a part of building what you want in our world. And I pray all these things like a believe Jesus Christ.